Thank you, Ian Lindsay. Well, it's so fantastic to be here with you this morning. Really excited to be here and um, see you in the flesh. Uh, I would encourage you, like Ian has, to try and get to this. Southampton is so easy to get to. I came up from Southampton yesterday, hour 20 on the plane. It's quicker for you to get to Southampton than it is to get to Aberdeen or Newcastle. So uh, get down to Southampton in, in November. Um, well, we have been so intimately involved in what you're doing here in Glasgow. From my church, Gateway Church down in Paul, where Ian and Lindsay were before. Uh, two years ago, Ian and I were up here walking around the streets of Glasgow talking about, thinking about, praying about what God might do in starting a new church. And last November, I was here with John and Richard, a couple of my uh, fellow elders from Gateway, for the vision night when we started to talk about this and to launch this. And so it's just brilliant to actually be here now and to uh, be in this amazing venue. Thank God you've got such a great venue to meet in and to see you and excited about all that God is doing here and all that God will do. We are praying for you lots still down in Paul, often in our prayers. Everything we pray for for ourselves, we ask, ask for you as well in terms of the blessing of God. And so I'm really uh, excited to be here this morning. When um, Ian asked me what I, should, when I asked Ian what I should speak on today, he said, speak about gospel-centered joy, gospel-centered joy. What a great subject. Who doesn't want to be joyful? Who doesn't want to be happy? The thing about happiness is that it's an emotion we have, it's, a, it's feelings that we experience, but happiness is often fleeting, it's something that we pursue. Everybody, who doesn't want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy, and so we, we pursue happiness, but it does kind of run away from us. We, we experience something, we taste something, we enjoy something, I'm happy because my team won the game, I'm happy because I finally got to kiss that girl, I'm happy because... I had three pints of beer, I'm happy because of this, that or the other, but it's fleeting and uh, people pursue happiness as an experience, but it, it, it's, like a, it's a bit like a mist, it quickly disappears and evaporates. And what I want to talk about this morning is something more solid than that, something which is founded not so much in an experience which is temporary and quickly passes, but something which is found in knowledge, something which is a firm foundation something which is not subjective, this is how I feel at this moment because this has happened, but something which is objective, this is stuff which is true, this is something on which I can build my life, and this gives me reasons for joy, for happiness, something which means that even when circumstances are not happy and when our emotions not, might not be happy, when those things shift, there's still a solid foundation of joy on which we find that we stand. Uh, to be honest, in, in my life, the past couple of weeks, there's been a whole bunch of stuff which is, in terms of circumstances, has left me emotionally feeling anything but happy. There's been stuff that's happened with some friends of mine, and there's been some stuff with uh, some of my, in my family, circumstances which have left me kind of ending each day thinking, man, I don't feel happy today. But at the same time, I've known that I'm standing on a foundation of joy, which has meant that I still genuinely have that sense of joy, even though my current emotion might be one of unhappiness rather than happiness. Does that make sense? So that's what I want to kind of explore and talk about this morning, how we find a foundation, something objective, solid, which keeps us standing in joy, even if our emotions and our experiences in the moment would not make us happy. And uh, we're going to look at a prayer in the New Testament for knowledge, which will help us to see this in Ephesians chapter 1. I think you normally use the ESV. I'm using the NIV today. 
should appear up on the screen as well. This is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, and uh, I believe it's also a prayer for us. I'm going to read from verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, and hope is another word for happiness, for joy really, that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Hallelujah. Paul's prayer that the Ephesians would know God. I wonder what you know most about a few weeks back, I visited my oldest daughter who's studying at university in London, and we uh, went to visit the British Museum and went to the Enlightenment Gallery. There should be a picture of it. So, there you go. This is the Enlightenment Gallery in the British Museum. It's an amazing room. It's a, it's a big room, and it contains kind of artifacts of the sum total of human knowledge. It's got loads of books. It's got art and sculpture, it's got uh, kind of collections and fossils and natural history objects. It's an incredibly beautiful room and a fascinating room. It's the kind of room, it's like walking through Google in terms of being in that room. There's so much stuff in there and I'd have happily spent weeks just kind of slowly going through. But the thing is, even just in that room, I know that there's too much knowledge, too much information in there for me to ever actually get to the bottom of it, or read it, or study it, or understand it, or retain it, or remember it, or there's just too much. And of course, Google is infinitely bigger than the Enlightenment Room in the British Museum. But I wonder what you know most about. If you're a student, maybe it's the subject you are diligently studying that you know most about. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's your work, occupation, maybe it's your family. You'd say, if I put you on the spot and said, right, we're going to ask you a hundred questions about your area of specialist knowledge and you need to get every question right, what subject would you choose? Now, what I want to talk about this morning is the thing we really need to know about, the one we really need to know about, is God. But who would dare to claim to be an expert on God to get you out here and say, we're going to ask you a hundred questions about God and you need to get every one right. Who would dare to stand up to a challenge like that? But the expectation of Scripture is that we can all be experts on God. So this isn't an aspiration for the elite few. Actually, this is something for all of those who have faith in Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying here in Ephesians 1. And there are lots of things that we know in this room, in this gathering of people, if we could extract all the knowledge from our brains, there's a huge amount of things that we know, and there's a huge amount more that we could know, but what we need to know first, who we need to know first, is God. 
And knowing God is a completely different category of knowing. It's not like the knowing that you can gain by spending six weeks walking through the Enlightenment Gallery and reading everything and looking at everything. It's not the kind of knowledge that you'll get from studying a subject at university for four years. It's a different kind of knowledge. It's a, it's a personal knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. It's coming into a relationship with the living God, knowing Him, being in a relationship with Him, being in communion with Him. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the invitation that is being extended to you this morning, that you can come to know not just about God, but you can actually know God personally, intimately. And if you already are in that place of being a follower of Jesus, what we need to look for this morning is to know more of God so that we can understand more of where our joy is founded. You know, knowledge is good. It can be really satisfying to know stuff. I'm a, I had a friend's birthday party last week and we had a, he had organised a quiz night for his birthday party. He's turned 40, it's the kind of thing you do when you're 40, organise a quiz night. And I'm, I'm terrible at quizzes because I get so, I take it far too seriously. I, I get depressed if we don't win. I was like, I should win! So I like to know stuff and my team won. I was far too happy. I was far, far too emotionally happy for winning a stupid quiz. But knowledge can be good, but it's a double-edged sword because... There's just so much stuff out there in the world. Walk through the Enlightenment Gallery, there's too much stuff. Get onto Google, there's too much stuff. There's just so much stuff. And actually it can become paralyzing, the amount of stuff there is to know in the world. I recently read uh, this book, uh, Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. You need to keep up with me. There you go. Um, anybody read this one? Sunday Times bestseller? Nobody ever reads bestsellers, do they? Somebody must have read it. Well, I read it because a friend of mine who's been going through burnout said this was a helpful book, so I, I, I read it. And Matt Haig is somebody who has himself experienced paralyzing anxiety, had frequent panic attacks, lots of mental health issues. And kind of his theory, the point of the book is that there's just too much stuff in the world. There's too much knowledge and there's too much material stuff and it's overwhelming. And he uses that to explain his own experience of anxiety and why the planet, why the world feels like a nervous place. There's just overload. This is what he says. Somewhere along the way, we have raised the threshold of what we need or feel we need to be happy. We are encouraged to buy stuff to make ourselves happy because companies are encouraged to make more money to make themselves more successful. It's addictive. It isn't addictive because it makes us happy. It is addictive because it doesn't make us happy. We buy something and we enjoy it, we enjoy the newness of it for a little while, but then we get used to having it, we acclimatise, and so we need something else. We need to feel that sense of change, of variety, something newer, something better, something upgraded, and the same thing happens again. And over time we get used to more and more stuff, and this applies to everything. The Instagram who enjoys getting a lot of likes for their selfie will soon seek more likes and be disappointed if the number stays the same. The grade A student will come to feel like a failure if they get a single B. The entrepreneur who becomes rich will seek to earn more money. The gym goer who likes her new sculpted body will want to train harder and harder. The worker who gets the promotion they wanted will soon want another one. With every achievement, acquisition or purchase, the bar is raised. Seems like a good definition of our world's information is exploding at the same rate as a nuclear explosion. The way that data is produced is going at the same speed as a nuclear explosion does, and there's just stuff coming out of our ears, and it seems to make us more and more anxious. 
more and more nervous. And then we've got Greta Thunberg and the whole climate uh, stuff and all that, and everybody's just fearful. And rather than feeling happiness and joy, it feels a lot of the time that as a culture, as a nation, we're just nervous, we're anxious, we're fearful. We know stuff, and the more we know, the more anxious we get. We have loads of stuff, and the more stuff we acquire, the more we feel guilty. Every good thing we have, whether it's food or clothes or relationships, also seems to be threatening in some way. Just uh, being at Ian and Lindsay's house and seeing a number of different bins outside, that made me nervous. How am I supposed to know which bin to use? It's like, there's just too much. It's overwhelming. It's paralyzing. And uh, Matt Haig, in his book, provides some good diagnosis and he provides some good common sense advice about how to cope with the anxiety of the modern world, but he doesn't offer any foundational solution. Because our problem in the end isn't that we want to know stuff or have stuff, our problem is that so often we think we want, the thing we think we most need actually isn't the thing we most need. And uh, the reality is that even churches can fall into this kind of trap. Churches can seem to be offering, come to us and you'll find your best life now. If your problem is a relational problem, come to us and we've got this great relationship course you can do. We'll fix your relationship problem. And if your problem is addiction, well, come to us and we've got this great addiction course and we can help you through addiction. Or if your problem is financial, come to us and we've got this great finance course and we can help you sort out your finances. And all those things are good, and if you're part of this church, as I'd hope people who are part of my church, that if you've got relational problems, you'll be helped by being here. If you've got addiction problems, you'll be helped by being here. And if you've got finance problems, you could be helped by being here. But actually, it's a kind of mis-selling, because that's just dealing with the symptoms. There's something more foundational we need to deal with, which is, do we know God? And so the way that Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 is very clear. What he wants is for them to know more of God. It's what he says, I keep asking, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What do you need, you Ephesians? What do you need, you Glaswegians? What do you need? What do you need most? The thing you need most is not more knowledge of this, that, or the other. It's not more stuff. It's not more recycling bins. What you need more of is God. And when Paul wrote this letter, he was probably in jail in Rome. And so he had real obvious needs. He was chained up to a Roman soldier. He was kept under guard. He had limited freedoms. He was a prisoner. And the Ephesians who he was writing to, they also had needs. Ephesus was a tough city. Imagine what it was like to be in the first group of Christians ever in this big, aggressive city of Ephesus. It must have been really tough. And our default position is, tends to be, I'll be happy when my needs are met. But there's a remarkable absence in Paul's prayer here of praying for material needs. What he prays for, what he believes they most need is more of God. What do you most need in life? What you need most in life is more of God. And I wonder if that's different from how we pray. I recently read this book, Pray Big, by Alistair Begg, who is a Scot, although he now lives in America. Shame on him. It's a great little book, but I really encourage you to read it. Pray Big. He says this, The believers in Ephesus were in one sense just like us. 
They had concerns for food and for clothes and for shelter. They would have thought about and talked about and worried about being married or getting married, being parents or wishing they were parents or wishing some days they weren't parents, employment, paying taxes, wealth, health. But there's no mention of these matters at all in what Paul prays for them. In fact, praying about health, which if we had the chance to listen in on the prayers of Western Christians, would likely come in at number one, is rare, almost non-existent in the Bible. So why are we praying about it so much? I read that and I went, ooh, I did, I went, ooh. Part of the answer I'd give to his particular question about why are we praying for health so much is that actually what we see in the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus prayed for the sick. Praying for the sick and then getting well is a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven breaking out. And so I'd say to you that if you're sick this morning, do not leave this morning without getting somebody to pray for you that you might be made well. Because we believe the kingdom of God is breaking in and that means that sickness flees. But nonetheless, the question that Alistair Begg raises and the point he's making is a good one. That the things that we pray for are often very different from how we see the prayers of the Bible. And as we read the way that Paul and the other apostles pray in the New Testament, what we see is that there are things that they consider to be more valuable or more desirable than health or wealth or freedom. There's something which is more likely to bring you into joy than health and wealth and freedom. And that's a real challenge to us and it's a real challenge to me because the world in which I have grown up in has trained me, has trained us the way to find happiness, the way to joy, is health and wealth and freedom. If you can have health, if you can have wealth, if you can have freedom, then you're going to be happy. That's what our culture teaches us. The prayers of the Bible teach us something else. There's something else to have, which is a more solid foundation for joy, for happiness. This is exactly what Jesus himself taught us. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first his kingdom, and these things, these other things, will be given to you as well. What Jesus is saying there is don't let the tail wag the dog. If you want to find joy, if you want to find purpose, if you want to find meaning, if you want to find happiness... You find that in the kingdom of God. You find it in God himself. Our society, our consumer society, teaches us to put the tail first. And that's why, as Matt Haig says, the Instagrammer who enjoys getting a lot of likes for their selfie will soon seek more likes and be disappointed if the number stays the same and a grade A student will come to feel like a failure if they get a single B. It's because we put the tail first and think that's what's going to work, and it doesn't. And that's why we live on a nervous planet. It's why we're all so anxious, because we're not seeking first the thing which actually can bring us into fulfillment, purpose, happiness, joy. Now we might think as we read Paul's letter, as we read, read his prayer for the Ephesians, think about his circumstances, the circumstances of the Ephesians, we might think, why isn't Paul praying for those who, amongst them who are sick? Why isn't he praying about their work situations? Why isn't he praying about all the stuff they're experiencing, the persecution they'd have probably been experiencing as the first ever Christians in the city of Ephesus? 
I mean, why isn't he even talking about his own circumstances? He's, he's a prisoner in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. Why isn't he praying for himself that he might know freedom? Doesn't he care? Is Paul just too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use? But I think Paul's prayer isn't lacking in pastoral sensitivity. And I don't think he's ignoring the practical realities of his own experience at this time and what the Ephesians are experiencing. What he's doing is identifying what is most important. What he's doing is identifying what is best for us. And what is most important, what is best for us, is that we know God and we know more of God, which is why he prays, I keep asking, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. It's the most important thing. Now let's break it down a little bit and see what Paul means when he prays that we know more of God. He prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Now that seems rather confused anatomy because of course hearts don't have eyes. They have valves and chambers and all the stuff that Lindsay and the other medics here can tell us about. They don't have eyes. But of course what Paul is, the picture he's painting here is that the heart represents the seat of our sense of identity, knowledge, emotions, who we are. That's what the heart represents. And so when he prays, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened, what he's asking, what he's praying for is that our spiritual eyes would be opened up to God. There'd be a spiritual seeing of God, that who we are as humans, what's most essential to us would be seeing who God is. And when we first come in faith to Jesus, when we first respond to him and believe in him, that happens as God opens the eyes of our hearts. But Paul here is praying not for unbelievers, he's praying for those who already know God. He's praying that they would know more, that they would see more, they'd have a a greater openness, that their hearts would be different because of the way they're seeking after God. And think about how the physical heart responds to exercise. The heart changes if you train your heart by doing the right physical exercise, the heart becomes healthier and stronger. And it might be that you are operating below your true spiritual potential, just as we can operate below our physical potential if our hearts aren't healthy. It might be that spiritually your heart, the eyes of your heart haven't been opened enough, so you're operating beneath your true spiritual potential. And that might be the case even if on the outside things look good. It's the same with the physical heart. You know, you can go to the gym and you can do hundreds and hundreds of bicep curls and end up with massive guns, but still have a fundamentally unhealthy heart because you haven't trained your heart. All you've done is work your biceps. And spiritually, we can be like that. We can kind of put on the pretense of looking okay, but actually our hearts are getting clogged up and not operating as they should. And so we need to pray like Paul does, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened. And there are reasons, three reasons Paul prays this way for their spiritual eyes to open. The first thing is he prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart might, might be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You know the hope to which he has called you. Hope is a beautiful word. Hope was singing beautifully. Great name. It's a good name. It's great to have a grace pray at the beginning and the hope sing. Those are beautiful, spiritual, profound, theological words. My, my wife is called Grace and I'm always 
grateful to God that he gave me a wife called Grace. So I'm reminded of his grace day by day. And it's good to be reminded of hope. Every time you look in the mirror. Jeez. Every time you look in the mirror, hope standing in front of me. Now, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not just about having a positive mindset. It's not, I hope someone finally sorts out Brexit. It's not, I hope I pass an exam. I hope she says yes. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I live to, to, to be 100. That's kind of wishful thinking or, or positive mental attitude. Christian hope is very different from that. Christian hope is something about hope in something which is certain. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's a beautiful picture. That even though we get buffeted by the storms of life, as an anchor, which is grounded, solid, fixed, is not going to move. And so the storms of life might be pitching and tossing and blowing you around, but you're held firm by an anchor of hope. That's amazing. <coughs> Romans 5, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Wow. That's what we're looking for. Want to find joy? find it in the hope of God. Our hope is in the completeness of our salvation, which is guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that even if we know that, if we've come in faith to Christ, we can kind of lose sight of it. The eyes of our hearts can get dull. We forget what it means. This amazing hope that we have that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and our salvation is certain, guaranteed, sure, definite. If you want to find joy, you find it by finding hope, hope in Christ. You can sing the great old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You can keep on singing on those days when life feels desperate. You can sing when darkness veils his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My anchor holds within the veil on Christ. The solid rock I stand all other grounds is sinking sand. And you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can sing his oath, his covenant. His blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We need to know hope. If you want to be joyful, if you want to have an uh, unshifting foundation of joy on which your life is standing, pray that the eyes of your heart might be opened so that you see the hope that is yours in Christ. The second thing that Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There's two different ways that prayer can be read. The first is to see that we, the people of God, are God's inheritance, that we belong to him. This is what the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priest, the holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you understand what it means to belong to the people of God and thus to belong to God himself, that will cause praise to come out of your mouth. It causes you to know joy. 
because you understand this is where I belong, this is my identity, I belong to God, he's chosen me, he's added me, he's grafted me into his people, I belong to him. The second way this prayer of Paul, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance could be understood, is to see that he gives us an inheritance. In Colossians chapter 1 it says, give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Give joyful thanks to the Father because you're going to receive this great inheritance. In Christ we inherit all things. This is an amazing hope that we have. If we're Christians, we're grafted into Christ. We belong to Christ. We're his and he possesses all things. He's Lord of all things. He's Lord of the universe. Everything belongs to him. And in him, somehow it also all belongs to us. That's an amazing thing to remember if you're feeling materially poor. It's an amazing thing to remember if you're worried about the economy. To think actually that in the end, the whole lot is going to be ours because it belongs to Christ. And in Christ, we get to share in all he has. And so there are two kind of dimensions to this thing that Paul prays. We know the, the riches of our inheritance. That it is rich. That we belong to God's people. That we ourselves are his inheritance. And he is going to share with us all that he has. He has an inheritance for us. And if we understand that, that gives us a foundation of joy on which to stand. The third thing that Paul Actually, there's another verse I want to read. Hosea 6, verse 3, Old Testament prophet. He says this, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. You know the Lord. You'll know him coming to you. You'll know the certainty of his appearing. As the sun rises, as the rains Come, he comes to us. He gives us his riches. We need to see how rich we are because we know him. Next thing that Paul prays is, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. To know his incomparably great power. You know, God's power is incomparably Great. A few weeks back, David Cameron got into trouble because he was trying to flog his memoirs and he told the story about when you had your referendum here and uh, he asked the Queen if she would raise an eyebrow to try and affect the results of the Scottish independence referendum. And of course, Prime Ministers and ex-Prime Ministers are not meant to publicly speak about their conversations with the Queen, especially if they've asked her to do something, especially if they've asked her to do something which might have an impact on a huge constitutional matter. And of course, David Cameron got in a lot of trouble about that, and Alex Salmond and others are very angry about that. But just think, if the Queen can raise an eyebrow, and the argument that was made was that she did that, that she dropped a little comment into somebody in private, which she knew would be overheard, and that's it said, you tell me, I don't know if it affected your votes, change the way that the referendum vote went here in Scotland. If the Queen raising an eyebrow can have an impact upon a national referendum, what happens when God raises an eyebrow? His power is incomparably 
great. And as it says here in Paul's prayer, his power is the power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, if you want to be standing on a foundation of joy, the way to do that is to know the reality of God's power, God's resurrection power, the power that raised Christ from the dead at work in you. And the only way you're going to know that power is when the eyes of your heart are open so you can see the power of God's at work. And so we need to pray like Paul did. We need to pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open so that we would see the reality of Christ's resurrection power at work in us. If you are a believer in Christ, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Wow. Facing a crisis in life. Facing an exam that you're not ready for or equipped for or facing a moment of crisis in health or facing a moment of crisis with a friend or a family member where something terrible has happened. How do you get through it? Well, a way to get through it is to know the power of Christ's resurrection life at work in you. That's what will give you the resilience and strength. That's what's going to get you through. That's what's going to enable you to stand on a foundation of joy even when the circumstances are miserable. To know the power of God at work in your life. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Which is how the world spins. But let the one who boasts boast about this. That they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You know, our world is looking for kindness and justice and righteousness. That's what people are looking for. People are looking for truth and meaning and beauty. And it's so elusive and so hard to grasp. And everything we do just seems to make things worse so much of the time rather than better. We know, we know that we human beings, we know we're made for a world which is meant to be beautiful and not polluted and despoiled. But it's so hard not to end up polluting and despoiling the world. Even as we seek to cut down on the mess of the world, we actually make it more ugly by having half a dozen plastic bins on your driver. I mean, the irony, the problem is the plastic, and you've got six huge plastic bins on your drive. We just make it worse as we try and make it better, but we know that we're made for beauty. We know that we're made for truth. But what is truth? And as you see, the Houses of Parliament, each side slagging each other off. Where is truth? We know that we're made to know stuff, but so often the more that we know doesn't make us happier, it makes us more anxious. And the Word of God says that when we know God, He's the one who is kind, He's just, He's righteousness. He's righteous. And it's by coming to know Him that we find truth and beauty and meaning because that's what God is like. How can we find gospel-centred joy? Well, we need to see that joy actually is found in the gospel. That's where we find it, because joy is found in knowing God. And that's why Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us, first, that they would know God. Now, if we get this right... We're no longer going to let the tail wag the dog. We're going to get things the right way around. And we're going to be empowered to handle everything that life throws at us. When we see that what we need most is to know God. 
we get to the heart of things, to the foundation, not just tinkering with the symptoms, we're actually getting to the root of stuff. And if we're putting first the kingdom of God, knowing God, then that does release us from the human treadmill that we're so often on. It releases us from this terrible treadmill we find ourselves on of having to know more and acquire more and get more and becoming more and more anxious and guilty as we do so. It frees us from that because we find actually the pearl of great price, the treasure above all treasures, which is Jesus. When you find him, it puts everything else into perspective. Knowing more of God. It's knowing more of God that will get you through. What's going to get you through your Degree. What's going to get you through your relational problems? What's going to get you through your experiences of sickness and bereavement? What's going to get you through the global existential crisis we seem to be facing? What's going to get you through? What's going to get you through is knowing God. Because in Him is hope and riches and power. And standing on that foundation, you can know joy genuinely, deeply, eternally. And so my prayer for you here at Glasgow Grace is that you would be a joy-filled community, a joy-filled people. That when people from Glasgow come amongst you, what they would find, they'd find honesty, they'd find truth, they'd find reality. Not a super spiritual people who pretend that everything's sorted and right and you've got no problems. No, that would be a lie. But find a people who are standing on the solid ground of Christ, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that there's a genuine experience of the joy of God because what you're pursuing first, over and above everything and anyone else, is a knowledge of God, an encounter with Him, a relationship with Christ. And the eyes of your heart have been opened so you see Him, love Him, know Him, feel Him, taste Him, and proclaim Him. And that's good news for you. And it's good news for the city of Glasgow. It's good news for the world. That's my prayer. Should we pray? Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that uh, this wonderful new church, just a few months old, would be founded on this foundation of joy in the Lord. That this group of people would know the hope that is theirs and the riches that are theirs and the power that is theirs in Christ Jesus and would seek you first. And that would result in a in a, a culture, a foundation of joy which does speak good news to this city, speaks good news of a saviour who loves and cares and is merciful and can save to the uttermost. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that they would witness that, they'd experience that, they'd display that. But I pray for those here this morning where the circumstances of life mean that they don't feel happy. And for good reason, I pray that they might yet find themselves standing on a foundation, which means they have that, 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 that place of joy in which they are standing. They would be that anchor of hope, even if they're being buffeted by the hurricanes of life. They'd be that anchor of hope which, which holds firm, because you hold us firm. And so I pray, Lord, I pray, I pray that this people, I pray for you, Glasgow Grace, the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened that you might know him better. Amen.